Hi, and welcome to the Desert Heights Church Weekly Message, where we study scripture together verse by verse. Let's jump in now for this week's message. Uh, For example, in Genesis chapter 20, there's an incident with Abraham. He's one of my favorite patriarchs. Uh, We have this way of glorifying the patriarchs of the Old Testament. And then there's these stories that are kind of uh, make them less glorious. And I like to tell those stories that make them make these guys just very human. So in Genesis chapter 20, there's a story about Abraham and he's going to move to a non-Jewish nation. I didn't put the map up, but hopefully you remember where the Negev desert is. It's kind of that that V-shaped on the biblical map, okay? So in in Genesis chapter 20, by the way, I'm gonna read the whole story because it's all really good. This morning I was trying to decide if I should trim some of it out and I decided not to, so I'm just gonna read it really fast, okay? Engage your brains, here we go. Abraham moved south to the Negev and lived for a while between Kadesh and Shur. And then he moved to Gerar. You need to know that, Gerar. While living there as a foreigner, Abraham introduced his wife, Sarah, by saying, she is my sister. Did you catch that? He introduces his wife as his sister. So King Abimelech of Gerar sent for Sarah and had her brought to him at his palace with intentions. You understand what's going on, right? I don't have to draw a picture. But that night, God came to Abimelech, who is not a Jew, Are you with me? They're in a foreign land, not a Jew. God shows up to King Abimelech uh, in a dream and told him, you are a dead man for that woman you have taken is already married. Do you see the problem? But Abimelech had not slept with her yet. So he said to the Lord, he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Didn't Abraham tell me she is my sister? And she herself said, yes, he is my brother. I acted in complete innocence. My hands are clean. I think we can understand that. In the dream, God responded, yes, I know you are innocent. That's why I kept you from sinning against me and why I didn't let you touch her. Now return to the woman of your husband, return the woman to her husband, and he will pray for you, for he is a prophet. Then you will live. Abimelech is in trouble right here. God tells him, return the woman to her husband, and then you will live. But if you don't return her to him, you can be sure that you and all your people will die. Abimelech got up early the next morning, skipped his coffee and went straight, quickly called all of his servants together. When he told them what had happened, his men were terrified. Then then Abimelech called for Abraham. What have you done to us, he demanded. What crime have I committed that deserves treatment like this, making me and my kingdom guilty of this great sin? No one should ever do what you have done. Whatever possessed you to do such a thing? Abraham replied, I thought this is a godless place. I thought this was a godless place. There's a whole sermon there. I thought this was a godless place. They will want my wife and they will kill me to get her. And she really is my sister for we have, we both have the same father. I always tell the joke about Abraham finding his wife at the family reunion. 
not fitting into this story, has nothing to do with this message, but let's move on. She really is my sister, for we both have the same father, but different mothers. And I married her. When God called me to leave my father's home and to travel from place to place, I told her, do me a favor. Wherever we go, tell the people that I am your brother, which is half true. Then Abimelech took some of his sheep and goats and cattle and male and female servants, and he presented them to Abraham. He also returned his wife, Sarah, to him. Then Abimelech said, look over my land and choose in any place where you want to live. And he said to Sarah, look, I am giving your brother a thousand pieces of silver in the presence of all these witnesses. This is to compensate you for any wrong I may have done to you. This will settle any claim against me and your reputation is clear. Then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech. Then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech. He hadn't even really done anything. God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female servants so they could have children. For the Lord had caused all the women to be infertile because of what happened with Abraham's wife, Sarah. That's an incredible story. The opportunity for the opportunity for adultery was reason enough for God to get involved and stop adultery from happening. If the godless king Abimelech was aware of the severe offense adultery is against God, you would think that we would understand the severe offense that adultery is against God. In Genesis chapter 39, you'll remember Joseph had been sold into Egyptian slavery. After being in prison, he was working in Potiphar's house and Potiphar's wife, she puts the move on Joseph and tries to seduce him. And here's what he said to her. He said, look, my master trusts me with everything in his entire household. No one here has more authority than I do. He has held back nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God. We often think about how our sin is going to affect ourselves, those we love, those around us, on and on. But consistently through scripture, it is about how is my sin going to affect God? Why would I sin against God? Joseph aware, was aware that adultery would be a great sin against God. But now, now back to Matthew chapter five, exercising his authority over the law of Moses, Jesus says, but I say, Anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery. That's what we've been talking about. With her in his heart. If you even look at another person with a desire for sex, you have committed adultery. If either of you have been married. So what about adultery in the rest of the New Testament? We looked at the, New, the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Well, we have similar verses throughout the gospel, so I'm not going to repeat them. But 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, you can write these references down. I didn't put them in your notes, but you should write them down and look at them later. I'm not, as I was reading through this this morning, uh, please understand, I am, I am reading this scripture with one purpose, and that is to point out the problem of adultery. If the... If, uh, 
Yeah, just, just that. That's, that's the focus with me, okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, he says, Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God. I'm pausing there for a second. Paul is using language very similar to the Sermon on the Mount, specifically the Beatitudes as we went through those several weeks ago. He says, don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin, very broad term, or who worship idols, or commit adultery, or are male prostitutes, or practice homosexuality, or are thieves, or greedy people, or drunkards, or are abusive, or cheat people. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Don't fool yourselves. I can see Jesus even now saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Don't fool yourselves. Don't fool yourselves. Hebrews chapter 13, I love the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 13 verse four says, give honor to marriage and remain faithful to the one, to one another in marriage. God will surely judge people who are immoral and those who commit adultery. God will judge those who commit adultery. You okay? I'm not asking if you're okay with that. I don't care if you're okay with that. That's what the scripture says. It's not for us to like scripture. It's for us to obey it, okay? We submit to it. It doesn't submit to us. God created marriage where a man and a woman become one. God created marriage where a man and a woman become one. And then those two do not become one with anyone else. It's basic math. While I'm doing this, I'm thinking of, remember the trick where you, you're like, it's magic. That was good. That's all that anybody's going to remember from my sermon now. You don't get to go around spreading your oneness. One, two people come together. Hebrews says, give honor to marriage, remain faithful to one another in marriage. Jesus comes along in the Sermon on the Mount and he says, but I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This has nothing to do with noticing that a person is beautiful or attractive, okay? I, I think kind of out of our out of this pharisaical spirit, uh, we, we want to make something of this that it's, it's really not. Uh, to the degree that, that some Christians, well, they're, they're, they're just afraid of being attractive because they don't want to uh, cause anybody else to sin. It's, we notice people are beautiful. That's perfectly fine. It's the sinful sexual lust that is the problem, okay? Um, being unattractive is not a biblical mandate. Don't, don't look around right now, okay? It's okay to, be, it's okay to look nice. Uh, it does have to do with what is happening in your heart when you notice that attractive person. If either or both of you are married, desiring someone other than your spouse for your own sexual desire is adultery. Jesus' message 
exposes our misunderstanding about anger that we talked about last week and lust this week. We think that we can hide these things from other people. Jesus' message exposes our misunderstanding about anger and lust because we think that we can hide these things. Murder or sleeping with someone, not your spouse, that's difficult to hide, that's gonna get out. Anger and lust gives us the illusion that we're getting away with it. You don't know what's really going on in my heart. And Jesus says, no, you're not getting away with it. God is clear. Those who commit adultery, even if it is only in their mind, they do not inherit the kingdom of heaven. The offense to the character of God happens long before there is immoral sex. See, we like to condemn, oh, look at those people there. They're living in immorality. Yeah, what's going on in your own heart? The offense is lust, simply desiring sex with a person, not your spouse. Number two, here we go. Number two, living by grace. Man, I like that. That is, I'm I'm probably gonna use that two or three more times before we're done with the Sermon on the Mount. Living by grace. I appeal again to the fundamental building blocks Jesus laid out in the Beatitudes, salt and light, and the imperfect law. Jesus blesses those, in the Beatitudes, Jesus blesses those who are poor and realize their need for God. God blesses those who are humble. God blesses those whose hearts are pure. God blesses those who work for peace. Sweetheart, participating in adultery is not working toward peace. True story. Living by grace is not living in a permissive manner. Let me clarify. Sometimes we think, well, it's, we have God's grace, and so we can, kind of, we can kind of blur the lines of sin, and we can kind of live close to the edge, and we, can, we have grace, and so we have liberty, and we can kind of live free. Living by grace is not living in a permissive manner. It is living in a way... I'm going to rephrase this. Living by grace, by God's grace, is living in a way that demonstrates God's character in and through you. If we're living by grace, this is not how close to sin can we live without sinning. It is how close, how much can we demonstrate the glory of God in us and through us. So we live a million miles away from from sin. We're not, we're not trying to live in the gray area. We're trying to live in the glorious area. Yes, that's good. Yes, that's good. The light of Jesus shining through you, the light of Jesus shining through you is not a dim flicker. It is God's glory shining through you. So Jesus is not imposing another oppressive law. He is demonstrating that at, at its best, the law has shortcomings. It falls way short of the glory of God. When Jesus introduces the king, the coming of the kingdom of heaven, purity in marriage is not the standard of God's glory. I like the way you're thinking. When Jesus comes and introduces the coming of the kingdom of heaven, purity in marriage is not the standard of God's glory. Purity in your heart is the standard of God's glory. Yeah. 
The holy character of God shining through you is the evidence of God's presence in you. It's that whole salt and light thing. Did you catch that? The holy character of God shining through you is the evidence of God's presence in you, putting to death your sin-filled nature and filling you with the presence of the eternal, living, and righteous God. That gets us to verse 29. So, if your eye, even your good eye, There's a funny family story there. Uh, my daughter, oh, she was little. She's six or seven years old. And we're, she sent to her room to look for her shoes. She's 21 now and still looking for her shoes. <clears throat> she never can find her shoes. So she says, she comes back and she says, I looked and I even used my good eye. <laughs> she still couldn't find her shoes with her good eye. Sorry, again, has nothing to do with the text. So because of God's presence coming and living in, in us, so if your good eye... pardon me, if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your strong hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown in hell. Now, I know that your mind is already going 100 miles an hour, so I need you to focus on what I say for the next 45 minutes. The struggle is real in these two verses because there's a lot of controversy over whether Jesus is speaking in a very literal sense. Oh, I saw a pretty woman had a dirty thought. Now I got to gouge my eye out. Or is he speaking in hyperbole, which is just a literary tool for overstating a point? Overstating. Is he overstating? Is he being dramatic? I want you to bring, I want to bring to your attention back the living by grace. That's the point that we're in here. We are living by grace. If it is all about you, then God should just let you live in a way that you are content. If it is all about God, then you and I should live in a way that glorifies him for his benefit. Do you see how there's a difference there? Living by grace is not about your freedom to do whatever sinful thing you want. Living by grace is about our freedom to glorify God with all that we have. Now, here's what I think. I'm going to give you my opinion on the controversy of these two verses and how they should be interpreted. And at the end, you're going to say, so what is it? What is your opinion? I would have to read the notes all over again. So here's what I think. First, follow along with me. First, the penalty for adultery, back in the Old Testament that I just read from, Genesis, from Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, the penalty for adultery was literally death. You already know where I'm going, right? Much more severe than the loss of an eye or a hand, the standard of the Old Testament, death, is not an overstatement to make the point. It wasn't hyperbole. That was a reality. Two people get caught in adultery. They took them outside of town and they stoned them to death. Not a hyperbole, not an overstatement. That was literally the truth. People were actually stoned to death for committing adultery. Second, Jesus appears to be giving a very serious remedy 
to a very serious sin problem. Because we read it and we're like, oh, surely he doesn't mean we should cut off our hand or poke out our eye. No. Well, in the Old Testament, they killed you. The problem is that our flesh resists Jesus's remedy at several points. Our flesh doesn't, our flesh doesn't like the law. Our flesh doesn't like conforming to, to Christ. Our flesh just doesn't want to really give in to all of this. The problem is that our flesh resists Jesus's remedy. First would be pain. So we're faced with this whole thing of, well, I want to be a Christian. I want to enjoy my lust problem or I would have to endure the pain of gouging out my eye or lopping off my hand. That's not cool. So it's either lust or pain. I'm not sure. And I know how guys would go. Not the right way. <laughs> this would be physically crippling. If I cut off my hand, well, then we can, we can go through the whole thought process of, well, then I can't provide for my family and that wouldn't honor God. And we start justifying why we can't put up with uh, harming our bodies to avoid sin. Losing an, eye or a hand would, losing an eye or a hand would create some physical limitations. Third, there'd be a social stigma. Can you imagine? Hey man, how did you lose your eye? Well, I couldn't stop looking at pornography and so I had to gouge it out. Is Jesus's question, is Jesus's instruction in the Sermon on the Mount is his instruction out to destroy us? Because it only makes sense that our flesh would resist such a dramatic solution to our sin problem. Self-preservation is an instinctual reflex. You blink to protect your eyes. We jerk back from something that is hot. However, our physical bodies are not wired to protect themselves from spiritual destruction. Jesus' instruction would obviously limit one's exposure to lustful looking. Stay with me. Jesus' instruction would limit one's exposure to lustful looking because now you only have one eye. But I'm convinced that gouging out the eye to avoid looking, I am, but I am not convinced that gouging out the eye to avoid looking was Jesus's intent because he would have recommended gouging out both eyes. If looking is the problem, let's get rid of both. I am convinced that Jesus's instruction shows us the degree of concern Jesus has for, for our eternal spiritual being. It is better to be physically maimed and stop lusting than it is to be in good physical shape and be thrown into hell. That's what he says. Well, but it, my body, it's my body. I need to I protect my body. We will protect our body over our salvation. There's a problem. This is a very real lesson. Our physical well-being does not take priority over our spiritual well-being. I'm just going to have a drink of water while you think about that. Our physical well-being does not take priority over our spiritual well-being. 
We're ready to give our life to become a fully devoted follower of Christ, right? Pastor preaches, come to the end of the service. Do you want to devote your heart and your life to Christ? Give him everything. Oh, yeah, give him everything. Love him with all I got. But then today it is, I'm not asking for your life. Would you simply give up an eye or would you give up a hand to be a fully devoted follower of Christ? Oh, why is that such a different question? Why do we treat giving our life to Christ as figurative? And then when we come to this passage where Jesus says, I would like an eye or a hand so that you don't sin, well, that's hyperbole. He's overstating it. Not that big. He doesn't really mean. No, I think that he is under. I think that Jesus is understating the reality. Jesus literally wants, he doesn't want your eye or your hand. He literally wants all of you, spiritual and physical. Jesus wants to redeem and recreate all of who you are, your complete being. Jesus wants all of you to die. This is what we just did with communion, right? Jesus died for our sins so we could die to ourselves so that he could be resurrected in us. That was the whole idea. Jesus is wanting you, all of you, to die. I, not all of y'all, but all of you. I don't know, that's get lost in the plurals, huh? Jesus wants all of you to die to you so that you can be filled with the presence of the Holy Spirit. This means there is no room for you to use your body, to use your mind, to pursue your own sinful desires. He wants it all. He doesn't want your eye or your hand he wants it all. In the Old Testament, uh, adultery was punishable by death. In the Old Testament, punishable by death. Here and now, we, we don't punish adultery at all. We actually just set it free and let, let the natural course of chaos to have its effects. You, you take a marriage and you insert adultery and now you've severely damaged that marriage. Often leads to divorce. Children are torn apart. There's a whole discussion 20 years ago about how children of divorce don't end up with a home at all. Uh, we, we joke about they have two homes now and they actually have mom's home and her new husband and we have dad's home and his new wife and the kids are somewhere in between and they don't really have a home. Children are all torn up because of the, the effects of adultery in marriage. The National Institute of Health, so coming from a totally secular standpoint, they reported in, in 2019, they did a study of children of divorce, they said that they're more prone to what they called adolescent adjustment problems, things like lower grades, drop, school dropout, depression, drug abuse. The statistics go on and on and on, and it's terrible. You introduce adultery into a marriage, you have financial problems uh, or ruin. People can end up losing their house, their car. Uh, they end up in extreme debt. But cutting off a hand seems extreme. You see where we're at? Okay, I'm at the end. Jesus' standard is not too high. Jesus wanted to communicate the value 
and the sanctity of a pure mind and a pure body in marriage in the kingdom of heaven. He attached a value to faithfulness. Did you catch that? He attached a value, a physical value to faithfulness, not just in your sexual life, but in your thought life. Surrender your body and your mind early on to the authority of Jesus. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, 22, I put this in your bulletin because it's a really good verse. He says, run. It's Joseph here, right? The story of Joseph. Run from anything that stimulates your youthful lust. Instead, pursue righteous living, faithfulness, and peace. Enjoy the companionship of those who call on the Lord with pure hearts. That's why we come to church and hang out with church folks, because we're all working at this together, and none of us are perfect, and we need the community of the body of Christ to work together towards the righteousness of Christ. It is by God's grace in you that you have the opportunity, the privilege, the honor to live a life that shines the grace of God to your spouse, to your children, God's grace even to that attractive person, and so on and so forth. You understand. Lust does not have to shape your life. God's unreasonable grace is a much better option for shaping your life and your thoughts. You've been listening to the Desert Heights Church Weekly Message. We would like to invite you to one of our service times at 9 or 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings here in Farmington, New Mexico. If you'd like more information, please visit our website at desertheightschurch.com.